Osteoporosis, or loss of bone density, is one of the leading causes of death in the United States and many other Western societies. The common answer to bone loss is usually calcium. While calcium has an important role in our overall bone health, there's much more to the story. Strong bones, optimal food for skeletal health. That's our focus in this hour of an organic conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. Food is thy medicine, once again. Food is one of those areas that the deeper we look into it, the more we find amazement for just how much can be addressed or re-regulated through our dietary choices. We've had shows on diabetes, cancer, aging, mind, mood, and so much more. In this hour, we're speaking with a physician about how to prepare and combine whole foods to prevent and treat osteoporosis naturally. Osteoporosis, or the loss of bone density, is one of the main causes of death in Western countries. Our guest is also the author of The Healthy Bones Nutrition Plan and Cookbook. Strong bones, optimal food for skeletal health. That is our topic in this hour. I'm Helge Helberg, and this show is made possible through the fantastic support of our underwriters. Thank you to Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. Thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or any other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. I'm Helge Helberg. This is an organic conversation. Bone density is our topic in this hour. That and so much more coming up right after the break. Stay tuned.
And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Strong bones, optimal food for skeletal health. It's all about osteoporosis in this hour of an organic conversation. The loss of bone density, one of the leading causes of death in the United States and many other Western societies. And what you can do about it, how you can prevent that perhaps, is the focus in this hour, the Healthy Bones Nutrition Plan and Cookbook, How to Prepare and Combine Whole Foods to Prevent and Treat Osteoporosis Naturally. And on the phone with me is now Dr. Lara Kelly. She is a licensed traditional Chinese medicine practitioner who's joining us today out of Topanga, California. And she's on the show because she's the co-author of the book, The Healthy Bones Nutrition Plan and Cookbook, How to Prepare and Combine Whole Foods to Prevent and Treat Osteoporosis Naturally, which she co-wrote, co-authored with her mother, Helen Bryman Kelly. Dr. Laura Kelly, do we have you on the show? Hi, it's a pleasure to be with you. Yes, um, thank you for making the time. I want to actually start before we dive into the book and osteoporosis or skeletal health. Particularly, you're a doctor of so many medicine, Eastern philosophies. You're a doctor of uh, traditional Chinese medicine. You're a doctor of acupuncture and oriental medicine. Can you describe these three areas of work briefly or what they are and, and um, how they are different and why or how you make them work together? Well, they're actually all sort of falling under the category of traditional Chinese medicine. Acupuncture, if you study in China, you split medicine, sort of traditional Chinese medicine, into two parts. And one of the study paths is acupuncture, and the other study path is internal medicine. And in this country, when we study, we've, we've combined them. So you're covering everything from acupuncture to treating general medicine, basically, everything except for surgery. So that's, that's traditional Chinese medicine as a whole. I mean, you can imagine that as a culture, China, the Chinese culture developed its own medicinal system. It's very much the way the West developed our own. We own developed our own medicinal system, which became modern Western medicine. The Chinese had a system of medicine for taking care of themselves. So that system of medicine is traditional Chinese medicine, and it encompasses all aspects of health and all aspects of wellness. Is it fundamentally the same because we're talking body, or does it really approach health or the body from a completely different vantage point? Well, it is fundamentally different, which is one of the reasons that I chose to study this type of medicine rather than going straight down into Western medicine. Because if you think about things like diabetes or things like obesity or insulin resistance, a lot of the chronic conditions that we're dealing with presently in the U.S., The way that, that the Chinese system looks at those is rather than looking at them as diseases, uh, they look at those as symptoms. So those symptoms signify underlying body dysfunction, and sets about to write the, the system and the reasons why these symptoms are showing up, rather than the Western approach, which is treat this symptom as a disease and treat that disease as separate, rather than attempting to fix the underlying foundational issues. So... It's a lot more uh, holistic, for sure. And when you say a symptom, it, it, so often it is really more an imbalance than anything else. Is that too simplified, or is that fundamentally true? No, I think that's fundamentally true. I mean, one of the things that's happening now in Western medicine is that it's, in a broad sense, it's moving sort of back towards more sort of what you would consider traditional thought practices in terms of medicine. 
I mean, when you're starting to look at the idea of genetics and bringing genetics into medicine as we're doing now in the West, what we're finding out, especially, for example, in oncology where a lot of that work is happening, that a lot of the medications don't really work for everybody. They work for some people, and what they're finding out is that that's based on genetics. And so suddenly we're moving back into the paradigm of personalized medicine or customized medicine based on who this individual is. And that's another big difference. Traditional Chinese medicine always looks, there are two considerations when you're diagnosing a patient, and one is how are they presenting, what are the symptoms of their underlying imbalances, but also what's the constitution of their body in which this problem or issue is occurring. And both those two pieces of information are required to make a proper treatment plan. So as we're moving again sort of from the West into genetics and more personalized medicine, it's sort of coming back around to understanding that who you are as an individual may be very different than the person sitting next to you or very different from your sister, even if you share a lot of genetics. Yeah, fascinating. Usually we we are seen as, you know, this is our body and we are healthy and then sometimes some of us get sick. And it sounds like Eastern philosophies approaches this as, no, we are all completely individual, ever-changing, and there's an, a balance or an imbalance that the body constantly works for. And if something is out of whack, then everything will be affected by it. How can we bring it back into balance? But we're basically, it's an ongoing process. It's a daily challenge in the way or a daily task to, to keep that balance and the, the focus on health in mind. And we can't live a perfect life, but when we know we you know, go to a party or don't get as much sleep that week, that we recognize that and bring it back into kind of a more, more stage of, or, of harmony, if you will. Is that, is that a good That's, summary? Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things, that, again, I, I look a lot to, I do a lot of research and look a lot to Western medicine and Western technology because I think it's really useful to understand mechanisms of the body, which is sort of what I've done in this book is understand the mechanism, but then, you know, figure out how to treat it without the drugs that are going to harm the system. But it's interesting to look and see that the more we come to understand about genetics and epigenetics and how our bodies respond to the natural world or to the unnatural world, depending, um, that happens on a minute-by-minute basis. We're making genetic shifts and genetic changes all the time based on environment, based on what we eat, based on how we feel, based on how much sunlight we have or don't have. All of those things are shifting and genetic shifts are happening, proteins are getting encoded or not encoded, genes are getting turned on and turned off all the time. So it's ne it's never a static system. And taking into consideration all of the changes that we can affect on our bodies in a negative and positive way is something that is, is like you say, it's a constant situation. We're speaking with Dr. Laura Kelly, a licensed traditional Chinese medicine practitioner and also the co-author of a book about osteoporosis, The Healthy Bones Nutrition Plan and Cookbook. In this hour of an organic conversation, Strong Bones, Optimal Food for Skeletal Health. I'm Helge Helberg. Laura, what does the role of food play in Chinese uh, traditional medicine Oriental medicine is it one of the blocks that you work with? What does it What does it mean for you when you work with somebody? Do you always go into diet? Is that basically at this point inseparable, or what's the status or the level of food and its importance? As you learn to be a doctor in the traditional Chinese medical system, which uh, in takes about seven years, the, one of the first things that you learn is that 
the, the, uh, the interventions are sort of staged, depending on how severe mm. and how deep the disease is within the body. For example, if you have a cold, it's sort of considered sort of close to the outside, and if you have you know, liver cancer, then it's quite far on the inside. And what, the first intervention always is food, because we have tissue, and the tissues, regardless of whether it's liver tissue or skin tissue or digestive system tissue, all of these things need to be kept up. Um, in the cases of, of your skin and your digestive tract, they need to be rebuilt continuously on a daily basis. As you, you know, if you eat a spicy meal, we're going to have your, while you sleep, your system will rebuild your gut, anything that got damaged. So all of these, these tissues need to have resources available to them. And that's sort of the first line of defense, in my opinion, is sort of like, are, do you have all of the foundational tools of building blocks that your body needs in order to healthily rebuild itself? So if you're dealing with an immune system, is, is there enough energy available to your immune system for your immune system to fight? Or is the energy being diverted to other things? And Giving your body all those foundational tools is going to allow your immune system to function optimally, allow your cellular regrowth to function optimally, and that's the first line of, of treating disease and of preventing disease. And so that is key to the Chinese medical approach. What made you focus on osteoporosis, and how did you stumble upon that, if I may say, to realize how much can be done naturally to do early enough to really prevent and treat osteoporosis, even prevent osteoporosis if, if started early enough. Why osteoporosis? Because of my mother. She had bone loss for most of my sort of adult life. She had a continuous 20-year sort of decline. And when I was in school, she said, hey, my doctor wants me to take a shot. It's a reclassed shot, and I'm scared, and I don't want to take it but there aren't any options. Is there anything that I can do? And I said, well, I'm sure that there are things that you can do, but I need some time to look into it, so I'll get back to you in a couple of months. So I took a fracture map of the world, and I looked at where are there low incidence of fracture, which countries and which countries have high incidences of fracture. And I'm using fracture as a reference point because you can have osteoporosis, of course, and not fracture your bones. So fracture is really the, the deciding line there. And that's where it started. I just sort of started to pick apart why certain countries would have low rates and why certain countries would have high rates. What's the, what was the cluster you found? Where, where did it occur more? Well, the highest rates of osteoporosis are actually in sort of Scandinavia, Norway, and Denmark. And these are called the countries that actually have what is now known as a vitamin D winter where you just simply have no sun, you're high enough, you don't really have an, enough sun and enough ultraviolet. So that is definitely a, a key issue, and that really indicates very strongly that's a vitamin D issue, and there's no getting away from that indicating a nutritional basis to a lot of this problem. Then the other, the other highest uh, rates of osteoporosis are in North America or in the U.S. And at the same time that I started looking into that, the Center for Disease Control and the U.S. government put out a report saying, here are what we're finding are the deficiencies in the U.S., the, uh, the vitamin and nutritional deficiencies in the U.S., and they're massive. And almost all of the nutritional deficiencies, which are over 50% of the population, some high as 70%, are key nutrients 
involved in not only bone health, but certainly in bone health. So it just became very clear that this was an approach that might yield some results. Uh, So I created a program for my mother and put her on that. And within, I think it took 16 months, but again, by her second year DEXA scan, she had stopped the bone loss completely, and that has held through her uh, through the past four years. And now we're working to increase the density. And of course, we want to hear everything that that entailed. But can you talk more about the nutritional deficiencies? What did you uncover in the U.S., or or what nutritional deficiencies are you talking about? What's missing in our diet, mostly? Sure. Well, the key component that seems seems to be quite key is a vitamin K2. The subtypes of vitamin K2 are MK4 and MK7, and they appear to function to direct calcium. So there's a hormone, a protein called osteocalcin, and the way that it functions in the body is with a vitamin K2 component to activate it. And without that vitamin K2 component, it won't activate. And so the calcium may not be as well directed to the bone as if that is is activated. It also requires vitamin D to be present at the same time as well as magnesium. So if you look at intake of uh, and deficiencies in the U.S., some of the numbers that are coming out are, and I'm not I'm not exaggerating any of this, it's all there, 50 to 70% magnesium deficiency, 70, even high as 90% vitamin D deficiency, according to some analyses of the, of the papers. Some calcium deficiency as well, which is very surprising given the amount of dairy that we eat in this country. So there you have, and we don't really have vitamin K2 in our diet naturally in this country. We've sort of bred it out of the system, and we don't have any foods that are very high in it like the Japanese do. So we're basically deficient in potentially four of the four major components that you need to build bone. So that is only, again, from also the calcium perspective, which is basically where we usually start that conversation. But the other thing that came out of the research and it it occurred to me, if you look at the Japanese population, they traditionally on their traditional diets have, you know, much lower rates of osteoporosis than we do. But if you look at the DEXA scans of Japanese women, we would consider them all osteoporotic, but they have much less fracture, excuse me, not much less osteoporosis, let's say much less fracture. So what does that mean if if they read as osteoporotic, but their fractures are very low? And what that meant to me was that there's a component of bones, bone health, which we just simply do not consider in the in the West in terms of older women, which is flexibility. And if you start looking at the way that bone gets built, the very first stage of bone building is to lay down a collagen scaffold. And that scaffold is where the flexibility of the bone comes from. And on top of that collagen scaffold gets laid the calcium and the minerals, which is what we associate with bone density. But there's no measurement of flexibility in the West. There's only a measurement of how dense is your bone. So if you look at the Japanese and you consider their diet, you're going to see more collagen intake, more silica intake, more trace mineral intake, much lower calcium intake, 600 milligrams maybe, which is half of what's recommended for women here, but much less fracture. So I think that flexibility issue is really key. Um, and it's not a hard thing to address. It just isn't dealt with in this country yet. We need to take a quick break, but uh, before we go, I do want to finish this part up and ask you why those nutritional 
deficiencies? What foods are missing in our diet from a dietary point of view that would be able to address that? Or is, is our food just not nutrient-dense enough to begin with? What's the problem here? Yeah, I mean, the problem is, is a multiple problem, as you know, I'm sure Always. most people are aware. Yes. Shall I continue? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was just um, confirming it's never just one thing, but... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's farming practices, there's soil practices, there's food preparation practices. A lot of traditional food preparation practices have been lost, and there's a reason why they developed all across the world in cultures that never communicated. There are basic fundamental ways that food needs to be prepared. Um, there's, there, there's pesticides, there's you know, toxic environment, there's all sorts of these things that are going to pull and keep us from getting, getting what we need. There's gut dysfunction, which is massive in this country, and if you don't have a healthy gut, you're never going to absorb no matter how much you take in. Um, but also vitamin K2 is really missing from the diet. What would that be in? It's, in, it's found in pasture-raised animal organ meats and eggs that are raised naturally, not on factory farms. Mm-hmm. You know, the chemical components of everything changes depending on its environment, and that's true with food that you ingest as well. We are speaking with Dr. Laura Kelly, the co-author of the Healthy Bones Nutrition Plan and Cookbook, which she did co-write with her mother, Helen Bryman Kelly, who was suffering from osteoporosis, hence the focus on that, because otherwise Dr. Laura Kelly is a licensed TCM, traditional Chinese medicine practitioner and a doctor of acupuncture. She's joining us today in this hour of an organic conversation from Topanga, California, in our focus on bone health, strong bones, optimal food for skeletal health. I'm Helga Helberg, and um, Laura, we'll take a quick break. Please stay with us. We want to dive into the diet part of what you found and what has worked for your mother and uh, hopefully will work for so many other people to prevent and treat osteoporosis naturally. We'll be right back in just a minute. Again, I'm Helga Helberg, and this is An Organic Conversation. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. The focus in this hour is strong bones, optimal food for skeletal health. And we are blessed to have Dr. Laura Kelly with us. The, she is the co-author of the Healthy Bones Nutrition Plan and Cookbook. Big shout out to her mom because uh, that was kind of the reason why Dr. Laura Kelly focused on osteoporosis. So she ended up 
co-writing the book with her mother, Helen Bryman Kelly. Again, thanks for joining us. And we talked before the break about all the reasons of why we don't get the optimal food or nutrition in our regular American diet and many other countries around the world to make osteoporosis really one of the top killers, maybe not directly as a disease, but through fracture, certainly, and particularly for older people. Talking about your book, what do you recommend as a, what, what does a, a really good osteoporosis focused diet look like for overall bone health? Well, it's not really the same thing as a, as a diet. It's more like the reason why I wanted to write the book in the way that I wrote it in the way that I did was not to say, here's a diet for you to follow to get stronger bones. I think that so many people have so many different approaches to food. And again, <laughs> because of genetics, there are certain things that are good for some people and not for others. And there's just so many possibilities. I can't prescribe a diet for a vegetarian who, who, you know, and then a diet for a meat eater. I can't write 10 books. But what I wanted to do was lay out Here's the way food works together. Here are the pieces that work together synergistically. These are the combinations of things that you need. And it doesn't matter if you get your vitamin D from salmon or from mushrooms. As long as you get this certain amount of vitamin D that you need in order to make sure your system is working optimally. So it's more about helping people understand what's required and where they choose to, what sources they use is up to them. So it's not, again, it's not a diet of here's to fix your bones. Great. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. That's really important. Yeah. And we we do have guests on who have authored books on a general gist, we call it diet. But in this case, it's a, uh, in, in those cases, it's a direction of how to approach food intake. In your case, it sounds like it's almost on a supplemental basis. You're You're saying these foods, if you added them into your overall eating habit, they would particularly be beneficial to prevent osteoporosis. Right. But it is also, it's not just sort of here, here's some suggestions for vitamin D addition to your diet. It's also, I mean, what I've also been careful about and is very important is that there are, there are wellness levels of vitamins dosages that you, that, that you need. If you look at the RDA, and this may be another one of the one of the roots of the problem, the RDA from the U.S. government was was established during the Second World War for uh, civilians overseas to to make sure that they just didn't have any you know major d- diseases from vitamin deficiency, and those levels are for are for sort of that that idea. It's a different idea to say what are the what are the levels of nu- nutrition and nutrients needed for optimal function and optimal wellness. And so it's important, it was important to me to look at all of the literature and look at the research in terms of what are the optimal doses for wellness of all of these, because we don't really know. And I picked, I've done the best that I can in, in, in an evolving science to say, these are the, this is what looks like the optimal levels. And the other important piece is that it's, everything is related. It's not just here's the separate amount of calcium and here's the separate amount of vitamin D. And here's a separate amount of vitamin A. Vitamin A and vitamin D balance each other out. Calcium and magnesium balance each other out. So it's very important to understand that all of these work together synergistically and in ratio. So all of that information I have made as available as possible to help people, again, if they want to have a vegetarian diet, 
they can make these choices. If they want to have a, a, you know, a carnivorous diet, they can make these choices. So, Can you walk us through the cornerstones of what that entails without giving everything away so that people would still buy the book? But <laughs> <laughs> what, are, what are the fundamental principles? If you look at the book for what it is, it's sort of, a, you know, in a very subversive way in my mind, it's a guide to overall health mm -hmm. because if you're talking about your bones and your skeletal system, your body is not going to require a different amount of calcium intake for your bones as it would require for your firing of your neurons or the, you know, the functioning of your heart. Your body is going to require the same amount of each nutrient for everything because it's one system. So in, from that point of view, I, I approached the book. And yes, it is directed at bones because it's a, it's a specific problem I wanted to fix. But in the larger sense, again, it's one system with one requirement. So from that perspective, you know, the book has, yes, it has dietary understanding, uh, nutrient understanding of what are, again, the fundamental tools of medicine that are required for your bone tissue to grow and to be strong. That's certainly a key component of the book. But before we get there, you know, we're looking at the whole body, we're looking at the whole system, and we're saying, well, what what is happening in that whole system? Because there are huge systemic factors that influence whether or not your bones are going to, your tissue is going to grow. Is your body in an inflamed state, you know, inflammation, high stress, cortisol that gets released from continuous stress actually physically degenerates bones. So there's all sorts of questions to look at beyond nutrition. Smoking, there are certain drugs, antidepressants have been implicated in bone loss. Corticosteroids, there's direct relation between taking steroids and bone loss. So there's all sorts of questions about the systemic state of your body. And then there's again, which is a key issue, which I mentioned briefly before, which is the gut. Um, it's a huge problem in this country. And without having that in order, for all of the nutritional advice and all of the good ideas, you're not going to get the benefit. So all of this is part of the system of strengthening your bones. Very fascinating and surprising in a way, and in a way it's not, but surprising to me that because it is such a widespread condition, or would you consider it a disease? This is, a, this is kind of a debate, but I don't in the traditional sense, because people hear the word disease and they think, oh, it's something I've contracted, or it's something that's yeah. permanent and I can't get rid of it, when in, in fact, if you Words are very powerful, and yeah. if you say to someone you have a deficiency, they're like, "Oh, okay, I can fix that." <laughs> yes. So I sort of prefer, I prefer that terminology. So deficiency or condition. Yeah. Uh, interesting that even though it is among the top killing uh, conditions or diseases in the U.S., m there's almost no book like yours. There's very little research done, as far as I know, on the complexity of osteoporosis, and if anything you know, maybe how to prevent it with, with drugs, but nothing in the way of doing it naturally the way you recommend. Was that your finding too, that there were surprisingly little published works or even books out on osteoporosis on bone health? There, there have been a couple. Yeah, um, <laughs> a couple. But <laughs> I don't, I mean, I think it, it's not a very glamorous problem, for one, you know, and it's a problem which is really, I mean, it's really just sort of hitting its It's not even hit its stride yet, to be honest. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's coming up, it's coming fast. There's a lot of osteoporosis happening as this baby boomer generation is aging, 
And then if you look at the numbers, the, the predicted numbers out of Asia, it's a skyrocket. So I think it just hasn't been that, you know, that of an issue. And I think also the other issue is that everybody's living longer and people want to stay active and people want to stay healthy. And so it becomes much more of a, of a talked about issue rather than people sort of retiring quietly at 65. Yes, and, and yet so many people are affected. And when you say numbers out of Asia are skyrocketing, is that mainly because a change in their diet, in their traditional diet, or what do you contribute that to? One would have to assume that would be the case. I don't see any yeah. other reason why Massive it would be change. so widespread and systemic. Since we like to summarize things just a little, can you hit on the top you know, eight or ten foods that um, you find extraordinarily important? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you some of the things that I like very much in yes. terms of giving people quick things that they can do. Um, for example, mushrooms, which I mentioned before, mushrooms have all sorts of wonderful properties for your health, um, but they also have skin on their underside, which is the gill portion, which functions similarly to our skin. It will absorb the ultraviolet rays from the sun and actually generate vitamin D just like we do. So Very simple. You don't need to go and buy a vitamin D pill. You can put your mushrooms upside down in the sun for two days, and that should generate enough vitamin D to substantially boost your intake. Before you cook them, you're saying? Yes, if you dry them. If yeah. you would imagine drying uh -huh. them, you put them in the sun, gill side up. And then you can store them. You can dry them completely and store them for six months or a year, and they're going to retain their vitamin D. So that's a great, simple thing that people can do <laughs> if you like mushrooms. Another thing that I really, really rate uh, are herbs. Herbs are concentrated sources of nutrition. And even weeds that grow in the backyard, which is a project I'm sort of undertaking at the moment, is to explore all of the sort of quote-unquote weeds of America so I can give people guidance on if you go into your backyard and you pick these weeds and put them in your bone-building vinegar, you're going to get pretty much optimal bone nutrition. So it's, it's a really great recipe in the book for me and for everyone, I think, is um, herbs containing huge amounts of calcium, very complex phytochemicals, which are also really important. Minerals, vitamins, everything is sort of in there, very, very complicated beings, <laughs> those herbs. And you can also use Chinese herbs. One of the other things that I find really useful and one of the reasons why I thought that this approach would work from the very beginning is because Chinese medicine, uh, a lot of Chinese medicine was researched by the monks, the Shaolin monks, very, very long time ago, 1000 BC, when they were um, practicing martial arts and they would injure themselves. You can have broken bones and contusions and trauma from martial arts injury, fighting injuries, and from war and war injuries. So there was a whole, there's a whole compendium of treating trauma, and a large part of treating trauma is mending broken bones. So there's a lot of there are a lot of herbs that directly address the mending of, of bones. So you can add those herbs to your bone vinegar and you're really creating a powerhouse in my opinion in that way. It's also fascinating that nature often suggests that um, like heals like in in other words bone broth could be used for bone health. Is that is that cor a correct statement? Definitely. There has been a fad, I think everybody's probably noticed, of bone, uh, bone broth for the past maybe year or two. Um, for the Chinese, it's one of the staple things that we learn about treating old, treating old age, <laughs> I guess you could say. Um, how, to, how to age more gracefully and without disease, one of the key staples in that is bone broth. 
because as you cook the bones, if you add vinegar again to the broth, you're going to release all of the constituents that are required for healthy bone. And you have to intake them some way, and intaking them in this way is, um, is, is optimal. In your diet approach, do you ever recommend supplementing uh, with drugs or even having you know, a regiment of drugs in addition, or do you find those contraindicated? No, no, they're not contraindicated at all. I would, I would encourage, there's, a, there's limited research on uh, taking the, mm -hmm. the bisphosphonates along with the right diet. In fact, I think there's probably limited research on bisphosphonates with any diet. But there are a couple of research studies that have looked at individual nutrients and a, the bisphosphonate therapy. And in every instance, it has shown uh, an assistance. So the, 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 they work together well. There is, no, there is no contraindication for a dietary approach. The only thing to say is that if you do start the bisphosphonate therapy because of the mechanism of action of that drug, you're going to limit the amount of bone density you can actually create for a, few, for a number of years. So if you can avoid starting there, if you can start with nutritional therapy, um, it, it will be better in the long run. How does that, how does that work? Can you ex expand on that just a little if you take that drug? Sure. That drug works by attaching to actually the bone, bone structure, and it, it, it inhibits the growth of osteoclasts. And osteoclasts, with a C, are the cells that break down the bone. And the bone is a living tissue. Um, it's, never, it's not just bone and then it's done. It's living as, as constant daily turnover, just like the rest of us. And there are two cells, and there's osteoblasts with a B that generate bone. They lay down the collagen and lay down the mineral, and then the clasps break that down. Say, for example, you're, you go running, you're going to maybe microfracture your bone, your body's going to go, oh, let's go fix that. The osteoclast is going to break down the broken part, and the osteoblast is going to lay down new bone tissue. So the bisphosphonate inhibits the growth of the osteoclast, so the bone breakdown stops. And for about six months, you have uninterrupted bone growth. Um, unfortunately, that slows down after a period of time, and after two to three years, all of it stops. And that drug seems to stay in the system for about a half-life of about 10 years. So you're interfering with any bone growth or bone breakdown, for that matter, for quite a period of time. Hmm. So you might not be losing that much bone, but you're also not building any in exactly. that time. And you also, the other issue is that if you're starting from a deficient place, The bone that you actually do lay down for that six months may not be optimal. It may be brittle because there are all sorts of ways in which it can look like you have bone laying down, but it's actually not structured properly because you may be missing minerals or something. So <clears throat> that's another problem is if you have, great, you have six months of lay down, but it's brittle. Such a fascinating topic, and I feel like we are just scratching the surface, and we should have you back in a year from now with all the amazing work and research that you are doing. Um, I want to end on a on a somewhat lighter note. How's your mom doing at this point? <laughs> She's great. She she wants to know what the next book is. Yeah. <laughs> so now, so do mom, we. Yeah, God forbid you come up with another health problem we need to fix. So <laughs> that's not happening, so that's we need a, to find something else. That's a good else. daughter right there. <laughs> And um, if you had to put your finger on it, what's your favorite meal for her um, or for you in, in regard to osteoporosis? What do you like to 
cook? What's the perfect? Is it like a mushroom dish or what? If you if you incorporated something in your diet once or twice a week, what would it be? Yeah, um, eggs that are pasteurized, and you're going to be at least getting a little bit of the vitamin K2. Mushrooms for sure, you know, a vitamin, if you have a, a vitamin K2 egg sort of omelet with sun mushrooms and some Gouda cheese, you're going to have more K2 in there. Um, that's, uh, you add a little bit of milk to your eggs and now you're getting some calcium. So yeah, that's, that's, that's a good one. And to, to close, because this is an organic conversation, how important is organic in all this for you? For me, it's very important. The, the more difficult your body is designed to work with nature, we, we grew up next to the plants, next to the soil. We all grew together. And the, the more you deviate from that, the more burden you place on your body. So as, if you're trying to put it back into balance, just eliminate as much of that burden as possible, I'd say. Wonderful. And that is Dr. Laura Kelly, who joined us today from Topanga, California. Uh, she is the co-author of the Healthy Bones Nutrition Plan and Cookbook, How to Prepare and Combine Whole Foods to Prevent and Treat Osteoporosis Naturally. The website is thehealthybonesbook.com. Is that correct? That's right. <laughs> thehealthybonesbook.com, available at Chelsea Green or, of course, Amazon or your local bookstore, which she co-wrote with her mother, Helen Bryman Kelly. Laura Kelly is a licensed traditional Chinese medicine practitioner and doctor of acupuncture. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all your work. And thank you for your research, bringing up these topics that are kind of fringe and very quickly are becoming mainstream as we all are aging and we all are the result of the, the diet and the choices our fathers made before us that we are now in one way or another paying for or benefiting from. Not everything is bad, but osteoporosis is really a big topic. And finally, it, it gets the attention, uh, particularly through your work, that it deserves and that it, that it needs as we're all wanting to thrive in older age. Um, thank you for all your work, and we'll have you back in, in a few. Thank you, Helga. That was really fun. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Again, that's Dr. Laura Kelly, The Healthy Bones Nutrition Plan and Cookbook. And um, the website, thehealthybonesbook.com. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. That was our focus on strong bones, optimal food for skeletal health. Osteoporosis is the topic of the day. And a healthy diet, rich in pasture based items, get that K2, mushrooms, herbs, and Whole foods, and we are staying with the topic of whole foods, fresh fruits and vegetables. Here's the update from the produce doc. What is happening this week in regard to organic produce? Here's what's in season. And with me now, not on the phone, but here in the studio, actually, is not Earl Herrick, the voice of the San Francisco produce market, of course, the owner and founder of Earl's Organic, but Christy, Christy Biddle, a buyer at Earl's. Hi, Christy. Thanks for stepping in. Hi. Thanks for having me. I know Earl is camping or something in the mountains. Yes, or he with is. Or a farmer. Or unplugged. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And well-deserved so, but st thanks for stepping in. And we had you on the show on fall produce. Right. So right around Thanksgiving, talking about cranberries and Amazing. fall fruit and items. And now we are in August. And uh, what is the item of the week? What are you avocados. focusing on? Avocados. Why avocados? Well, we've had an extraordinary California avocado season that started early and is just wrapping up, which is unbelievable. When, when does it start for a domestic avocado? March, April? Uh, yes. So typically, California avocados will actually start up in January. Wow. However, this year, they started in about November. A lot of growers think that that's due to the drought and stress on the trees and cumulative years of drought making the trees produce fruit early. But so we had, what, an eight, nine months California domestic avocado season? Yes. And that's coming to an end until we, whenever, November, December, or January, again, see domestic avocado. It's winding down. What does that mean for the consumer? What, what do you need to be aware of right now when it comes to avocado? So what that means right now, uh, we're really in the last couple of weeks that we're going to be seeing California avocados. Part of that is because the season started so early. There was also a heat event in June that caused a lot of fruit to actually drop from the trees. So different plants and trees react differently to stress and extreme heat. And avocado trees actually will drop fruit that is not mature, so growers can't harvest it yet. But it's on the tree, needs more time to generate oils. And um, in a response to over 100 degree temperatures in San Diego, a lot of fruit was dropped and lost. So There's nothing you can do with it. It's just not ripe yet. It doesn't have the oil. They exactly. can't turn it into a, a sub-product. No, there's yeah. nothing to do. Yep. So because of that, the season will be wrapping up early. We're at the tail end. Fruit is mature. So you want to eat your avocados when they're firmer than you might think. Don't wait until it has so much give that it's really soft. When you have the slightest bit of give as you're holding that avocado, you want to be eating it because the trees have been producing for a really long time. They're high oil. And if you wait until it has too much give, you'll taste that the flavor is off when you actually go to eat that avocado. Yeah, there's like a little bit fermented. What is that? The oil, Rancid. The, the, oh, the oil has gone bad. Exactly. <laughs> so at this point in the California season, you want to eat them a little more on the firm side if you're you know, debating between today or tomorrow. Go ahead and Better enjoy today. it. Yeah. And what else will it be replaced with? What else will we will we see? So we'll uh, start to see some Mexican Haas avocados in the coming weeks. And where we are in the Mexican avocado cycle is what's called flora loca. So that literally translates to crazy flower. And it's kind of sporadic production. So the trees will produce some fruit, but we aren't into the true heart of the season. Mm -hmm. So what I would suggest as you start to see Mexican avocados on the stores, shelves where you're shopping, is to put them in a brown paper bag on your counter and let them ripen that way because trapping the gas will help it to ripen more evenly. A uh, characteristic of the flora loca fruit is that it ripens a little bit weird. The texture is a little rubbery and, you know, they aren't. Crazy honest. flower. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what you'd expect. 
So um, I would suggest, as you see, Mexican avocados, putting them in a bag. That'll help them ripen as well as possible. So throughout the season or throughout the year, always uh, Earl emphasizes that you want to know where your produce is coming from because it behaves so differently. It seems with avocado, which are pretty expensive, right, mm -hmm. $2.99 a piece or so often, uh, that that is even more true right now. It's completely different. You actually, if it's firm, you want to ripen it further if it's already Mexican. Or if it's still California, you want to eat it the moment it has is not rock hard. Right. So Otherwise, during, you lose it, right? I mean, yeah. if you wait a day to two days too long with California. So knowing right now if it's Mexican or California makes or breaks the, the purchase. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's real important to know where it's coming from and, and then how you want to eat that piece of fruit. And with avocado, it's fairly easy to, to you just do the pressure Thing, right, mm -hmm. you have it in the palm of your hand, and you give it a little bit. If it has any give, and it's California, it's good to go. Absolutely, and you might notice with the you know this early Floraloca avocados from coming from Mexico, they might not get the dark color to the skin as they ripen. That's an indication of oil content, which just isn't quite there with the Mexican fruit at this point in its season. But it does get riper in the plastic bag, in the, in the paper bag. Yes, yes. so it will, it'll darken a bit, but yeah. don't expect for it to be that dark, dark brown, That's not an indicator skin. of ripeness. It will still be delicious if you if you ripen it in a paper bag for a couple of days. And yeah, yeah. It gets yeah. softer then. It has enough oil to have flavor, I it, guess is what I'm asking. Yep, it'll be, it'll be good enough. <laughs> yeah. But come October, uh, the Mexican avocados will be eating really well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Last question. If you buy a California one, can you slow down the ripening, the rancidness of the oil, if you're not ready to eat it yet? Like if something came up and you need to store it, would you put an avocado ever in the fridge since it's somewhat a tropical? Definitely. Produce? Putting it putting it in the fridge will help to slow that process down. On the counter, they're going to turn very quickly, the California avocados at this point. So putting it in the fridge is perfectly fine. And since I have you as the expert, keeping the stone in, if you only eat half the avocado, people say, you know, if you don't take the stone out because it somehow slows it down further. Is that really true? I don't know if it's true or not, <laughs> but I always leave the leave the pit in yeah. and leave it in the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks so much for coming in. That's Christy Biddle, fruit buyer, produce buyer at Earl's Organics, stepping in for Earl Herrick this week. Great to have you. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. <laughs> And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thanks for listening. A big thank you to our associate producer, Kristen Ponger. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? Anyone can buy directly from Earl's Organic at wholesale prices. The website is earlsorganic.com. And also Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine without synthetic sulfites or other preservatives. Family owned and operated since 1980. Fry Vineyards, Mendocino County award-winning wines. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y. W-I-N-E dot com. 
Thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to anorganicconversation.com or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher or Google Play so you'll never miss an episode. And for more information, health tips, recipes and your daily dose of inspiration, find us on Facebook and Instagram at anorganicconversation and our Twitter handle is talkorganic. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here. Same place, same time next week. See you then.